Please open your Bibles to uh, Colossians 3. I'll read uh, verses 1 through 17 and then pray. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you under the cross today, God. We thank you for your word, and as we trust and believe in you, Jesus, that we have a new identity in you, Christ, please show us who we are, who we have become by abiding and trusting in you. And Lord, I just pray for those here today who remain broken and guilty because of their past because of their old self, and I pray that you would, you would restore and renew them in you. So please, open our hearts today and give us the faith to know that we are your beloved. And Father, I pray that you would help me communicate your word. Holy Spirit, I, I need you. I confess I have my identity, who I am, has just come undone. So Lord, I, I hang on to you today. Would you help me, help us? We need you, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we are in the second week of a new identity series in Colossians, and we pick up from last week where Dave uh, uh, focused on becoming who we are in Christ. So who are you, and, and what are you? Who is the authentic you? What's the truest thing about and what's your identity? Let's suppose uh, I asked your mom. I mean, she's standing or sitting right next to you. What would she say about you? 
Or what would your spouse say? Maybe you see yourself through the lens of how much you produce or through the amount of, of sales in a given month. I mean, one month you, you go from zero to hero and then the next year you're hero to zero all over again. Or how much or little is your net worth? How much, how much your identity is wrapped up in, in how much you make or your salary or how little it is. Maybe you don't feel significant. Or maybe it's even you're identifying with your location. I live in the great city of San Francisco. I was just speaking with a friend the other night who, who just recently moved. He and his wife moved outside of the city. And now his identity is being challenged because before he would say, I live in San Francisco. And people are like, ooh. But now he lives in that other place. And they're like, oh, where's that? <laughs> or maybe your identity is still living in the past. What you've accomplished or, or how miserably you failed. You see, because our identity is so wrapped up in what we do, what we have, and what we desire, our tendency is to find our identity in both of these tangible and intangible things. Intangible things like, like titles, like what we do, how we identify ourselves. I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm an investment banker. I'm a teacher. Or I'm, I'm a mom. Or maybe it's by what we desire or, or uh, what... Uh, what we, we esteem to have, friends, or uh, how many Facebook friends, or maybe it's, again, how much money, or I want to just, I want to matter, I want to make a difference, I want to become somebody, or I want to be somebody. Or maybe it's a tangible identity, um, like money, um, like good, or good looks, or, or, um, or fame, or something like that. But these things are not what's truest about you. If you have identified with Christ, your identity is not in what you do, what you have, or what you desire. Because we can lose those identities very, very quickly. For example, it happens when, uh, when the kids are all grown up and they leave home. And now mom isn't a mom anymore. Or after you lose your job, or maybe you change career. Again, just yesterday I was talking with a friend who, who just went from a prestigious position to a, to a position that now where he's like viewed as the errand boy. And he's saying, I'm having difficulty with this. I used to be somebody. Maybe you think that, that you're no longer efficient or that you're not producing enough. Or maybe you just think that, that if you were to take a Sabbath, that you're actually losing valuable time. You see, these identities can become the very purpose of our life, and their loss can translate into losing a sense of self, losing our purpose, our self-esteem, or it disturbs our emotional stability, or it can even lead to just a full-blown identity crisis. I mean, after all, we live in a throwaway culture. When things are used or broken, we just tend to throw them away. And that's not only the case with impersonal things like cars and cell phones and clothes, but we also do it with, with things like marriages. We throw them away. Friendships. We get rid of them. I'm done with you. That's never going to happen to me again. Or relationships or beliefs even. Like, I can't trust this anymore. But the good news is that although we live in a throwaway culture, God doesn't view things the way that we do. Because God is a restoring God. And it's because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that God does these things for us. 
So what I want to look at today is a story of restoration. It's not, it's not going to be, we're not going to be in Colossians per se, but I think it's really applicable here because in order to restore something, it means bringing it back to its original condition, to restore it. So what I want to look at today is a story of restoration of how Jesus restores Peter. God restores us just as he restores Peter. And I think it's, it's one of the greatest stories of, of restoration and redemption in the Bible because it's so personal. It's personal because Peter's story is our story. It's, it's my story. Peter is me. He's you. He's us. That's what makes his story so personal. It's a story that involves calling, that involves risk, that, that, that you know, he fumbles, and it, there's denial, and then there's privilege of serving Jesus once again. It's the story of grace, of love, and of renewal. It's how Jesus restores Peter. Now, having said this, we realize that the story in the first place is all about Jesus. And the way that I want to look at this uh, remarkable story of restoration today is in how Jesus restores Peter is first with a look and then with a question. Jesus restores Peter with a look and then a question. First with a look. Now, Peter was an ordinary man. He was a fisherman until one day he was called to be a disciple. You know, we just went through the book of Mark, and we see the, the progression of, of Peter and who he was uh, uh, through this. He, but, you know, he was called to be a disciple, but he was like the number one disciple. And eventually, he would be the messenger sent forth and commissioned by Jesus to be the leader of his church. But Peter was a risk taker. I mean, he took big risks. He was the only other man ever recorded to walk on water. He also had a very big mouth. One that worked for Jesus, but also worked against him. He was always the first to speak. He was always the first to react and comment about everything. Peter was the first one to say, you are the Christ, the Messiah, and the one that we've been waiting for. Then, almost in the same breath, Peter steps out in front of him in Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, you can't die. And one day, uh, hiking with James and John, they go up to the mountain, and, and uh, Jesus transfigures. And Peter, he doesn't know what to say. He's so terrified. He's like, he's like let's make tents. I mean, just the craziest things would come out of his mouth. And then... On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter opened his mouth again, and he denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. Luke tells the story this way. In Luke chapter 22, it's up on the, the screen. Then they, they, they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, 
Still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. What was in that look that Jesus gave Peter? Was it anger or, or hurt or, I mean, was it anguish? There was something about that look that broke Peter down. Now, a look is very powerful. I mean, you know, there's that expression, if looks could kill. It's the look of a strong hostility in the eyes of a a murderous heart. And oftentimes we evaluate the look that we get from others um, because the eyes tell us much about what is in the heart. But after Peter's denial, something changed. Something died. It was a conversion-like moment for Peter. It was definitely a turning point in his life. Peter's own bold confidence and strength, no more. They died. They were killed. And after Peter denies Jesus, what does he do? He returns to his old ways, to what he knows and what he feels confident doing. You know, he was a fisherman before. And so what does he do? He returns back to fishing, but yet his failures still loom over him. The denial of Jesus plagues him, but, and he can't even shake the thought of what he's done. Can you blame him? I mean, maybe, maybe you're here today and you are carrying some shame and some guilt of things that you have done or said in your past. Or maybe you've, you, you feel like you've been, you, you, you're so badly hurt Or maybe you feel like you've been thrown away, just discarded. You've been left behind like so many other things in our culture. So Peter returns to the familiar, to the past, and to seek out, uh, you know, just a living, doing what he's doing comfortable with, which is fishing. And that first night back on the water, you know, he goes and he grabs some of his, uh, the other disciples, his friends, and they catch absolutely nothing. Does this sound familiar? I mean, it's, it's all too familiar, right? He's at, hard at work, he's hard at work for the entire night, and he ends up with nothing. Peter's failed as a disciple. He's failing at fishing, and now he feels probably awful all over again. I mean, how can he go, how can he go on? No, nothing good is coming Peter's way. He's in despair. How much longer can he carry on? Because... Peter didn't just have a sense of doing something wrong, but it was, it was the ultimate act of disloyalty. Peter realizes that in his heart, a treason has taken place, and, and a great, great sin has been exposed. It was a sin against love. You see, Jesus made Peter feel his betrayal with that look. That look was the look of affectionate, tender, compassionate love. What Jesus does, you know, throughout this whole time, he's, 
his heart and his eyes are looking towards Peter. And even in our failure, Jesus is looking towards us. At Jesus' most, most crucial moment, he's, get, he's being beaten, taken in, he's getting ready to die. And his thoughts aren't on himself, but he's looking to Peter. And he's looking to you today. But that look, that look made Peter remember the words that he spoke to him. It was just in that look, and Peter remembered. In, in Mark 14, uh, verse 72, it says that, And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And by this remembrance, Peter was restored. You see, he remembered what Jesus had said to him. He had remembered. Jesus made, made Peter feel that betrayal with that look, but then he remembered. And, and, you know, many of you guys here have heard God speak to you truth about who you are, that you are forgiven, that you are redeemed, that you are restored, but you've never forgiven yourself. That look, that look also removed Peter from the place at where his greatest failure was. Luke says that after that look, that Peter went out because they were in the courtyard where that, just, where that little glance took place in just one second. He saw Jesus, he remembered, and then he removed himself from that place and he wept out bitterly. He went and wept, he wailed. It was the realization of, oh my God, what have I done? He couldn't take it anymore, so he left. That look of Christ opened Peter's heart. Have you removed yourself from that place, from that place where you've fallen, where you've stumbled? That look made Peter ashamed to be ashamed. You know, I mean, Peter was never ashamed after this. And, and that, that's one thing that, that proves that he was restored. That's what was in the look. Peter was, was ashamed to be ashamed from that point on because he goes on and he preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 people get saved. This guy who, who curses at a girl twice and some other person, he can't even say Jesus' name. He goes on and he proclaims Jesus like, like it's nobody's business. He knows that he's been restored. If we have sinned with Peter, I know I have. I, I mean, I know I have. My mom's nickname for me is Peter. My, my wife, Erica, my wife's grandfather, calls me Pete. I mean, is that a coincidence, a nickname? Because it's like, wait, what's your name, Tarek? How about I'm going to call you Pete? I'm like, <gasps> it's confirmation. When was the last time that you wept? Because if, if we can identify with Peter in, in, his, in his sin, we should also identify with Peter in the way that he weeps, that he goes out. You see, what brings Peter back and what brings us back time and time again is the Lord's look of affectionate, tender, compassionate love. This is no ordinary look. And this is certainly not a look that can kill. Rather, it's a look that gives life. 
Now next, uh, Jesus restores Peter with a question, with a question. And I mean, what do you think was going on in Peter's mind before interacting with Jesus? I mean, knowing that he's just wailed in shame. I mean, what do you think he was, he was thinking? And now here Peter is, I mean, you know, we, we read the account of where they were out there, they're fishing, they're catching nothing, and then over on the shore, there's this dude, and he calls out, and like, they're about 100 yards out on shore. And then, and then Mark goes ahead and says, hey, uh, or I mean, excuse me, John, uh, the, uh, the beloved disciple whom Jesus loved, he, he tells him, he says, it's the Lord. And what does Peter do? Peter, is just, he jumps in the water. It's like in Forrest Gump, uh, the movie. I love that scene. It's, um, you know, Lieutenant Dan, they're out there uh, in the boat, and then like Forrest, you know, sees, he's like, or, or uh, Lieutenant Dan, and he jumps off the boat, and he like swims to shore. He's like, Lieutenant Dan, Lieutenant Dan, you know, and, and that's what Peter does. Peter goes, and he jumps out, out of the boat, and he's like, G- it's Jesus. I mean, what do you think was going on in his mind? I mean, first of all, it's certainly he's overjoyed. He's so overjoyed because he's like, oh my, Jesus, you are resurrected. It is true. But then he remembers he, there's also this uncertainty. He's got to be uncertain. He's like, where do I stand with you now, Jesus? I mean, after, after what I've done with you, there's a lot of uncertainty. Peter doesn't know where he stands. The disciples in the boat don't, doesn't know. They don't know where he stands. So, so now what? I mean, because if Peter doesn't lead, you know, because remember, he's the number one disciple. If he doesn't lead, well, who will? So now what? And in John chapter 21, we have this great story, um, which is what I've been referencing. And, and, you know, here we almost miss the punchline of the story, this threefold exchange. Let's, um, let me read it. It's John 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you were stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this Jesus said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to them, follow me. See, this is further proof of Jesus's restor- or, uh, Peter's restoration. Just in that last thing, follow me. But just as Jesus's denial, uh, Peter's denial of Jesus was threefold, he asks Simon, son of John, do you love me three times? I mean, why three times? And this is what I say, why it's the punchline. To erase and undo the damage. He wanted to erase and undo the damage. And to point back to the denial. You know, in John, we, there are only two references to a charcoal fire 
and they're both found in John. The denial by a charcoal fire when, when Peter denied uh, Jesus, it was said over a charcoal fire where he was warming his hands with the others. But the restoration was also a charcoal fire as, as he prepared this meal. It was a charcoal fire where they were fixing fish. They were both repeated three times. Peter denies Jesus three times, and, and now Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? They were also both public events. Peter denied Jesus in the courtyard of the priest. Uh, and, and now, although that, that he was uh, the only disciple there, uh, John was also present. And it was public. Other people were there. But now this is done, the restoration was done in front of the disciples. So Peter denies Jesus three times, and three times the Lord challenges Peter's love. The first time that he asks, do you love me, challenges the superiority of Peter's love. The, sweat, the second question challenges whether Peter has any love at all. And the third question challenges even his affection. So Jesus' question brings Peter to face his sin. And, and you and I, we must face our sin in order to repent. And, I mean, you can't believe that Peter was, was real enthusiastic and passionate about, about everything is fine here, uh, you know, because there was shame in his soul. Even though that he knew that he loved Jesus, Peter wasn't in a situation where he could see all these fruits of love. I mean, he just denied him three times. But broken and ashamed, he knew that he loved Christ. So he had to face his sin in order to repent. And the implications of facing and repenting your, from your sin can change the course of your life. And what Peter gets to do here is that he gets to connect again truthfully with his Savior. We get the chance to connect truthfully when we go back and we say, I'm sorry, I love you, forgive me. To let go of the feelings of guilt and, and, and to, to be renewed to move forward, and to be recommissioned, to follow me, as Jesus says. And why does Jesus ask this comparative question? Do you love me more than these? I mean, there's, there's debate about whether he was talking about, do you love me more than these, the fish, because that's what he used to do. But, but then, do you love me more than these disciples? You see, he challenges the, superior, the superiority of Peter's love because of his pride and arrogance. Remember Peter's big mouth, you know? He, in John chapter 21, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Referring to the other disciples. And Peter manifested his pride in three ways because he contradicted the Lord when he was like, you can't die, Jesus. He claimed superiority over the other disciples. You know, there's the, the little uh, outburst of where, hey, Jesus, listen. He's like, you know these other guys got issues. But me, I'll never de deny you. I'm even willing to go to prison and to death for you. But these other guys, not so much. Not so much. So he trusted in his own strength. And Peter's strength led him to that massive, massive failure. Have you been guilty of this kind of pride? Trusting in your own strength? Contradicting the Lord? Maybe contradicting someone that you go to that you confide in? another man or woman of God? Maybe, maybe 
you're claiming superiority. I know better. I know what's best. We do these three things all the time. But what Jesus is doing is that he's gently reminding Peter of his past and he's addressing his arrogance and pride. Peter thought that he was the best, that he, and, you know, he, he looked down on the others, but he was so sure that he was the guy. I mean, just appreciate what Jesus does by addressing Peter here. You know that Peter is restored and changed because later on, Peter even goes on to say that, that God resists the proud. He resists the proud, but he exalts and he lifts up the humble. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that the, at the proper time he may exalt you. See, God always restores his people and blesses people in their humility, but never, never in their pride. It, it's never. I mean, Peter would like tweet about this and he'd be like, hashtag lesson learned. <laughs> so in verse 17, Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? I mean, Peter is so hurt. He... He is grieved, he's sorrowful, and he it hurts to remember his fall. It hurts to have his love called into question. This is what Peter is doing right now. He's grieving his past, he's mourning his failure, and so we see Peter's conversion from being a strong man into a weakened person, but, but into a weak man into a weak man so that he could strengthen his brothers later, his brothers and his sisters later. Later, So we should never despise shame because it's in the context of which God restores his people. Now, we tend to take this in ex to extremes. I mean, you know, I, I want to I be humble, and so then, and I want to revel in my shame, and I'm like, oh, I'm so bad. But we shouldn't revel in shame either, but shame is the pathway to restoration. You see... The reality that God desires is that we become sorrowful over our sin, to mourn over it, to grieve over it, and then to fully turn from it. It's what the Bible calls repentance. Now, so many stories of this that we see. Uh, we see this with David, the psalmist. The psalmist said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, will, you will not despise. James says that we should be wretched and mourn and weep. But let our laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself, yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, God is near the brokenhearted. And next, Jesus' question questioned brings Peter to affirm his love. He, it affirms his love for Jesus. It's a degree of self-examination that takes place in Peter's heart. He has to dig deep. I mean, even though that he knows it, now he's faced with it. Each of the three questions focuses on Peter's love for Jesus. It's not, it's not, are you sorry? 
It's not, are you broken and are you truly resolved, Peter? I mean, now, is that, is, that, is that it? Will you promise that you'll never deny me again? You see, the focus is to affirm Peter's love for Jesus. But, but what's Jesus' goal in all of this? Is, is Jesus trying to challenge Peter and, I mean, just to expose him as a hypocrite? in front of everybody, because the disciples know what, what, what's happened. I mean, Jesus is like, see, Peter, I knew it. I knew that you would fail me. I knew it. I knew that you never really loved me. It's obvious. You are such a hypocrite. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. His goal was to create an opportunity to openly affirm him before the other disciples that he really did love Jesus. I mean, and, and Jesus is not in doubt here. About, Jesus, about Peter's love for him. He's not in doubt. And, and if he was, he could have just simply asked the other disciples and been like, hey, does Peter love me? Hey, what do you think? Do you think that Peter really loves me? The disciples would be like, no, man. Look at his record. He denied you three times, dude. He's done with you. He doesn't love you. Is that what Jesus is trying to find out? No. Jesus didn't say... Did you love me, Peter? Did you really love me? He says, do you love me? And and Jesus, furthermore, he doesn't say, okay, Peter, I accept it. Now prove it to me. Now you prove it to me, Peter. He doesn't say any of that. The focus is, do you love me in light of what you now know? You see, Jesus didn't, didn't throw away Peter and fire him and appoint John you know, and promote John. He's like, okay, Peter, you're done. John, you're appointed. You're the, you're the new leader of the church. No, and John even writes about it. John says that he didn't make John the leader. He made Peter the leader. That's what happens. Understand that what Peter had done was contrary to what Peter had wanted. He did what, he, he did something that he didn't want to do. And I think there's a tremendous lesson for us in this. Peter didn't appeal to his record. Peter didn't go back and say, hey, Jesus, but you know, I was the first one to say that you were the Christ, and and look at what I did, and and, and I know that I failed you, but but still, this is what I did. Look, I mean, remember, you told me that upon this rock, you pointed me. Remember all the good that I did? You know, the things that, that we do, we do this all the time. Is there more? I did good this week. I've got a lot... I've got a lot of credit in the bank right now for my good stuff, so I can just go out and I can, I can, I can party. I can, I can do this because i got some good credit stored up. You see, the cross speaks louder than Peter's denials. The cross speaks louder than your failures, than my failures, past, present, and future. So what does the cross say louder than, than Peter's guilt? than his shame and brokenness. The cross says this, you are restored. Why? Why are we restored? It's not because of your record. It's because of the record of Jesus Christ, because he was sinless. Peter is charged with something that's true, and then he gets reinstated. He's restored. But Jesus is charged with something that is not true, and he's condemned to death. That is a great injustice. But what's the truest thing about Peter? 
The truest thing about Peter is that he has been restored. And this is the mark of restoration. That, that the mark of a changed man is restoration. That there would be a turning and a change. And we see this so clearly in Peter's life. There has been a change from this denial to this proclamation of who Jesus is. Now, I want everyone to listen. Just listen. If you have been restored and placed your faith in Jesus, that means that you don't need to appeal to your record. You don't need to because because you can never earn your way back in. It's already been done for you. You can't do it. And until you get that, you'll continue to work and strive to obtain restoration on your own. The good news is that through his death on the cross, Jesus restored all of us just like he did Peter. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was thrown out by the ones that he came to save. I mean, nobody wanted to know Jesus when he was down and out. When he was naked, abandoned, beaten, and hung between two thieves. Jesus died for us. He was thrown away on our behalf for us. And because of the death of Jesus on the cross, our standing with God has been restored. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the sure and certain hope that one day all things, every single thing, will be restored. The good news is that Jesus Christ gives us what he gave Peter, a brand new start. Jesus Christ restores us. He brings us back because God is a restoring God. Peter says it best here in closing, and and then I'll, I'll pray. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after, after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we honor you this morning, and we want to express our gratitude for your love to us and the assurances that you give us, God, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that even if we fail, that you will keep us through your power in faith. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you how you have become as one of us, and we We repent for what we have caused you, Lord. But oh, how grateful we are for what you have done for us. To see the cross in all of us, in in all of its splendor and grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, you have done it all. And we thank you for that. And we pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen.